0: This morning we have the Blacklock girls who are going to lead us in the reading of God's Word.
1: Lesson from the Old Testament. First Kings 17, 1-7, 18, 41-46. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook to east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no
2: rain in the land. And Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain." So Ahab went up to the east to drink, and Elisha went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, "Go up, look. Go up now, look towards the sea." And when he, and he went up and looked, and said, "There is nothing." And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode down and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elisha. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Lesson from the Epistles,
3: James 5, 7 through 20. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those prophets wait behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfast of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by the heaven or Or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your eye, let your, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnations. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Righteous person has great power in its working. Elisha was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. speak to God.
0: Good morning. So we usually begin every Sunday with a question directed to our kids, but I'm going to speak to a different group of people first this morning. I'd like to ask a question to the person who typically drives for you on a long road trip. So whoever that might be, maybe mother or father, typically. So for those of you who are here this morning, while on these road trips, you as the driver, Are you the kind of person who always stops at the nearest restroom whenever anybody from the back screams, I need to use the restroom? Who stops, like, immediately? Like, next rest stop, you're, like, exiting the highway and you're there. Anybody? One, a couple people, very uh, generous to everyone else in the car. They don't want anybody to suffer. That's what I guessed. There might be only a couple among us. I imagine everybody else says... Things like, we just went to the restroom. You're going to have to hold it. We don't have another stop scheduled for 90 minutes. Like for those of you who have every single stop scheduled from here to wherever you're going, I told you not to drink that whole soda. You have an empty soda bottle. Or be patient because there's a Bucky's on the way. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, Bucky's. Kids, have any of you been to Bucky's? Any fans of Bucky's here? Yes. I know kids do love that place. <laughs> what is Bucky's known for? Beaver nuggets. Beer, Beaver nuggets? Yes. A common truck stop? Car stop. Yes. Yes. Really clean bathrooms. That's right. I know that's why a lot of us love Bucky's. Well, Bucky's, it is the world's largest convenience store. The largest Bucky's is over 75,000 square feet, has 120 no- gas nozzles at 60 different pumps. The longest car wash in the world is at a Bucky's in Katy, Texas. I don't know if you've ever been through it. It takes five minutes to go through, 25 different rolling brushes. Uh, but what I love about Bucky's, aside from all those amazing things, are the billboards. Have you all seen these on the road? Some of my personal favorites. If it harms beavers, we're against it. Our aim is to have clean restrooms. Your aim will help. <laughs> Top two reasons to stop at Bucky's. Have you all seen this one? Number one and number two. And my personal favorite, only 262 miles to Bucky's. You can hold it. You know, every Bucky sign has a little thing on the bottom that says how many miles is the next Bucky. And this one says the next Bucky's is 262 miles away. No matter how fast you're driving on the road, that's at least two, three, maybe four hours, depending on how fast you drive. It's like saying, "Son, I know you just said that you need to use the restroom, but there's a Bucky's three and a half hours away. You can hold it. Be patient. You can wait. Be patient. Do not be tempted to stop at a lesser gas station that does not have pristine restrooms, 13 varieties of jerky and beaver nuggets. Be patient, because something better is coming. Bucky's is coming. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning, not Buckys, but patience. Because James calls his readers, his audience, to be patient because something better is coming. So please pray with me this morning as we look into God's Word. Dear only Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that your Word is true and it is beautiful. That is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We thank you so much that you have not left us alone in the world, but you have granted us the wisdom of your word and that through its guidance, we can find true rest and peace in you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us see this morning that you have something better for us that awaits. And because there's something better for us, that we can be patient. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the true example of what patience is. And may we look to him as our one and only hope this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray amen okay so this morning the message about patience the idea is that the christian's posture our natural posture in life is one of patience and prayer so to begin we're going to talk about patience now we don't live in a culture or a time that prizes patience instead don't we live in a time of instant gratification i think everything's okay We live in a time of instant gratification. What is the one thing that's worse than not having Wi-Fi? Slow Wi-Fi. <laughs> Isn't that even more frustrating than not being able to access the internet when you're going somewhere and there's very slow internet? I read a stat that said 40 of per- 40% of visitors will leave a website if it takes longer than three seconds to load. We don't have the patience to wait three seconds or a website. Kids, have you ever thought I can't wait to grow up? <laughs> yes, we have one young lady who cannot wait to grow up, but a desire to do the things that you want to do, to eat what you want to eat, to make your plans, to do what you want to do. You can't wait for that. We're not patient. How did Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, describe the ethos of his company in the early days? Move fast and break things. You see, in our world today, there's frankly no time to be patient. That's not what it was like for James and his readers, and especially those in the early church. Because persecution that the early church faced, it drove them to be people of patience. Now, when I say early church fathers, I'm talking to people like who lived within the first 500 years after Jesus' death. But it's not an exaggeration to say that the early church fathers, they're obsessed with this idea of patience. The very first treatise dedicated to a Christian virtue is not written on love, it's not written on faith, it's not written on hope, it's written on patience. The early church fathers called patience the highest of all virtues, the virtue that was peculiarly Christian, the very core of the church's witness. What is the church, what is the early church about? Patience. In fact, there's this wonderful book written by a man named Alan Kreider and it's titled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And what he argues in this book is that the main reason that the early church grew from zero to a faith that basically conquered the entire known world at that time is because of the virtue of patience and its central importance in the life and witness of the early church that's what James is talking about this morning. So please read with me as we look at James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, it may sound strange to us, but James says that the reason to be patient the way to be faithful even in the midst of trials and difficulties is to remind yourself and reflect upon the coming final judgment of God. And what I want to talk about this morning is that the final judgment sounds like this very dark and foreboding and harrowing thing. And in many ways it is that. But what James is saying is that the final judgment is good news. He says the virtue of patience and final judgment cannot be separated. And he tells us specifically two things About this coming final judgment. Number one, first, James says that you only have to be patient for a limited amount of time. You don't have to be patient forever. Only until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives an example of the farmer, which I think is very instructive. You see, the farmer knows and is confident that the early and late rains will come as long as the Lord provides them. It's not a waiting for waiting's sake but it's waiting with a specific hope and expectation about what's to come. So we often think of patience as passively waiting, but biblical patience, especially in the way that James uses it, is not passive at all. The farmer expects the rain, and because he expects it, he prepares for it. Does the farmer anticipate the coming rains? Does he sit back and relax and let the rain do all the work? Or, does he understand that in order for the rains to be effective and to produce the precious fruit of the earth, that he has to first cultivate the seed, cultivate the soil and sow the seed and do all the hard work of farming? The farmer, as well as I would argue the Christian, holds two truths in tension at all times. The first is, the farmer works harder than anyone else. He understands that you reap what you sow. And if you don't sow, you're not going to reap anything. But at the same time, The farmer recognizes that he is ultimately not in control. He knows that all of his work is for nothing unless the Lord is the one who brings the rain. So he waits patiently. The farmer both works hard and waits. But second, not only is the waiting not forever, but has a specific object in mind. But secondly, James reminds his listeners that the coming of the Lord is at hand, meaning... The coming of the Lord is soon. We talked about this last week. I mentioned last week, Jesus himself tells us that no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. And because of that, we're in fact commanded to always be ready because he's coming at an hour that no one expects. So if you read a lot of Jesus' parables, a lot of them can basically be summed up in two words. Be ready. Be ready at any moment that Jesus himself could return. But I think that, uh, especially for us, you know, reading these words in 2023, it's a bit challenging because we think, oh, so much time has elapsed and it's hard always to stay ready. Kids, you ever have this feeling that when your parents tell you something will happen or maybe that they're going to give you something or that you'll get some sort of expansion of your freedom, in the future sometimes but it never comes or it hasn't come yet you begin to doubt that it'll ever come it's difficult to always maintain a be ready type of attitude but God is so gracious to us he knows that even in our weakness that even though we can't know the time or the hour or when Jesus specifically will return he actually does tell us why that is why Jesus hasn't returned yet. So Jesus doesn't tell us, or God doesn't tell us the when of when Jesus was returning, but he tells us the why he hasn't come back yet. And the reason why Christ has not returned is, in a word, patience. God's patience. God's patience with us and his desire that none should perish and for all to come to repentance. And it says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. So Peter, or Peter's audience is wondering the same way that we are. Okay, Jesus promised that he would return. Where is he? Verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is his one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Have you ever had the painful experience of someone saying mean or untrue things about you? And what if it wasn't just one person? What if it was two people or three people or dozens of people or the whole entire school? What if you have the power to correct those false rumors? If you have the ability to punish the people who are spreading them? Wouldn't you do something about it? Get your justice, your vengeance, and your revenge to clear your name? Or if you think about it, that's precisely the situation that God has been in for thousands of years. With people responding to Him all the way from casual indifference to outright hatred and hostility. Yet, what is God's response to that? It's patience. And why? The Bible tells us that God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this doesn't mean that in a universalist sense that everybody gets to go to heaven. But what it does tell us is that God's true heart is that everybody would. He desires and he delays his judgment in order that all might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and respond in faith and repentance. So if we know that that's what God's heart is like, that's why God is patient, then that informs us as we're waiting for the same day what we should be doing as we are patiently waiting. Not passively waiting, doing nothing, but joining in God's mission. Sharing with others about Christ that they too might ultimately respond in faith and repentance. We are called to be patient because we love and serve the one who is ultimately patient toward us as well as toward the entire world. He continues in James chapter 5, verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, and you have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, the final judgment not only forms the basis of our present patience, But it's the reason why we're able to love our neighbor. As I mentioned earlier, the final judgment is good news. And part of the reason it's good news is because it means that you aren't the judge. You aren't the judge. As one author writes, he says this, The Bible's picture of final justice means that justice will be exhaustively done. But it'll be done by God. And so it does, not mean to be exhaust- it does not need to be exhaustively done by us right now. Do you see how that works? I mean, think about it. If there's no final ju- judgment, then it is up to us. We have to pursue full and final justice in the here and now, or else it will never come. If there's no final judgment, then it's up to you and it's on your shoulders to right every wrong that's ever been done to you, to correct every injustice, not only that's been done to you, but done to anybody else and throughout our entire world. In that world where there's no final judgment, there's no place for patience. There's definitely no place for forgiveness. But, if there is a final judgment, as James says, and if there is a good and a just judge, and if this good and just judge is, as we read, at the door, then you can be patient. You can forgive. You can choose not to take matters into your own hands, trusting in the goodness and the wisdom of that judge. That perspective is not what a good Roman of James's day would have said. You've heard the name Cicero. Cicero was an early ancient Roman statesman in order, and he says this about what a good man is. He says, a good man is one who would help those he could and would harm no one. Sounds like a pretty good person. But he continues, he would harm no one unless he is provoked by mistreatment. That's what a good man is in ancient Rome, but what does Jesus say? He says a good man loves his enemies. Luke 6, I say to you, anyone who would hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold the other. Or, I'm sorry, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, there's a lot of different ways to understand what Jesus is commanding us to do here. But as we're reading James, in the context of the letter of James we understand that the power and ability to fulfill this really impossible command to love our enemies, this ability only comes from understanding that you are not the judge and that the one who is the judge is coming and he's at the door. Patience then is not resignation, but it's an acceptance and a hopeful waiting for the good and the just judge to come and the the one who has promised to return and set all things right. It is not your job job to be the judge. Your job is to patiently wait for the judge and trust in the one who is. James 5.12 But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Um, Now, I'm not going to spend too much on this, the importance of the integrity of our speech, which is important, but I just want to clarify one thing that might be a little confusing. When James says, but above all, he's not saying this is the most important thing, which I think is maybe the most natural way for us to read it. Those uh, three words in the Greek, they actually refer to a way of kind of describing the beginning of the conclusion of something as a way of saying, to conclude, don't forget. So similar to, I'm, n- I'm sure kids, none of you would ever feel this way, but sometimes you might be listening to a sermon, a sermon, or a lecture. Maybe your parent might happen to be someone who likes to give long talks in response to actions. And maybe sometimes you check out, but you know that there's clues that the end of the speech is coming. That's what this is. This is the clue to James's reader that I've told you all of these things and it's a lot to take in, but trust me, the end is coming. So he says, but above all, maintain integrity in your speech. And then he ends with this idea of prayer. So as I said, the the posture of the Christian is one of patience and of prayer. And they really go together. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain. But then he prayed again, and the heavens gave his rain and the earth bore its fruit. So James gives us three specific situations in which the Christian is called and commanded to pray. Number one, suffering. Number two, rejoicing. And number three, sickness. And similar to the vows that a husband and wife will make to one another, which I assume many of you might have made to one another on your wedding day, what do they say? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, now what are we trying to say? Now, we're trying to say... We're making a vow to want to remain faithful and loyal, to love one another, no matter what life may bring. The whole spectrum of the experience of life. For richer or poorer, and everything in between. Sickness and health, every, no matter what happens, we're here for one another, we're together. And that's what James, I think, he's trying to make a similar point. He's saying whether you're suffering, or whether you're cheerful, and for the Christian... In your life, you're going to experience times of suffering and times of cheerfulness and everything in between. That's the reality of living in a beautiful but broken world. He's saying, in all these situations, what is the Christian supposed to do? What is the Christian response? It's prayer. It's understanding that we are dependent upon God for all things. And one thing I I want to make sure to point out is important to note that what it does not say. It doesn't say that the sick person is sick because they have committed sins. And that's really important to point out because this is the precise error that Job's so-called friends, right? It points to the steadfastness of Job as the prophet earlier. But the error of Job's friends is to believe that our relationship with God operates on some sort of quid pro quo basis. You know, quid pro quo means something for something else. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And that perspective is not only common in Job's day, it's common in our day. God, if I give you something, you'll give me something else. Oh, God, you've brought this into my life. It must mean that I didn't do something I should have. But that's not the way that God has revealed his character to be. God is one of generosity and mercy. If God treated us according to a quid pro quo basis, none of us would be here this morning. Who of us could stand before him? And so James isn't saying you're sick because you did something wrong. You think sickness is part of the human experience. It's life in the broken world. But what are you supposed to do in response to your sickness? He says, look to the certainty of future judgment. Same reason we're to be patient is the same reason we are to pray. Because we serve and worship the God of future judgment. And God calls all those who are suffering to look forward and place their hope in the future judgment. And yes, that is true, but he doesn't leave us helpless in the meanwhile. He doesn't say something good is coming far off in the future, so just bear it up as best as you can until you get there. What does he give us? We see in this passage, he gives us three wonderful gifts that every Christian has been given. Number one, he gives us the church. Number two, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And number three, he gives us the gift of confession. So the church, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, and confession. First, he's given us the church, and specifically it says he's given us the elders of the church, the people that have been set aside by the church as examples in life and faith. Now I think there's nothing magical about an elder praying for you. I think. But I think what he's trying to say is that elders are the representatives of the church who will physically come and pray over you in your sickness. Not because they have special healing powers, but because they are the representatives of the entire church body. So as the elders pray over you physically, the rest of the church is also praying together. So you as a church member, if you're not an elder, it doesn't mean, oh, this means I can't pray for people who are sick or that somehow my prayers are less effective. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that elders are just one among the entire church body, or not just one, but a group of elders as representatives of the entire church body. So if anyone among us is sick, we're all to pray together. Specifically, the elders going among them physically. But that is the gift that we have been given, one another to pray for each other. Secondly, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. I get this from the command to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. So there's a ton of different interpretations about what this oil is. Is it oil for medicinal purposes, or is there something else? My understanding is that this oil points back to the oil, the anointing oil of the Old Testament, that was a symbol or a sign of God's presence among his people. Leaders were often anointed with oil to signify that God's favor was upon them. So I take this oil that the sick are to be anointed with as a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the lives of the individual and the life of the church. And lastly, we see the gift of confession. We as a church body have the privilege of confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. Now notice, the Bible talks a lot about the importance of confessing our sins to God, before God. But when it speaks of confession, more often than not, it's actually talking about the importance of confessing our sins to one another. So it's not just enough to, in, you know, every week we have our time of confession, we have our silent confession, in which you before the Lord present and confess your sins before God. But James, as well as many other biblical authors, says it's just as important that you do that as well as confess your sins to one another. Because even though our physical sickness, as I mentioned, is not a punishment for our sins, our physical sickness is a byproduct of the fallen nature of our world, it can be an, and it can be an accurate reflection of our internal hearts. Meaning, sometimes when we're sick, we recognize how weak and needy that we are. God uses the various things in our life to help us see our need for things like confession, repentance, to receive forgiveness, and to restore our faith. And I love the way that James ends his letter. James chapter 5, 19 through 20 says this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a beautiful image to end his letter on. The implication is that no one is ever too far gone. No one is so far away from the mercy of God that they're unable to be brought back. And not only that, but you could be an agent of God's mercy in restoring sinners. If you're a Christian, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then certainly know somebody. Perhaps even someone quite close to you who at some point in their lives claimed to be a committed follower of Jesus who is no longer walking with God. Likely you're thinking of multiple people, not just one. James is saying, never lose hope. No one is ever too far away from the mercy of God, including us. Let us never tire then in patiently waiting for God to work, praying for those people among us, and doing what we can as we wait and as we are patient in order to turn away that person from the multitude of sins and bring them back into the fold of God so as we conclude but above all I'd like to end this morning with a question and it's something that I was thinking about particularly as I was thinking about this idea of patience turning another cheek loving our enemies and the question is this are Christians just doormats? are Christians just doormats? are we just the people who are weak and naive in this world that the sharks out there can take advantage of? Are we the ones who are to be walked all over? And I hope you haven't heard that this morning because what I've been trying to communicate that patience is not weakness. Patience in the biblical strength is very opposite because patience is far more difficult than vengeance. Patience and forgiveness are harder than bitterness or resentment. Vengeance, the desire for it, that's natural. That's the normal human response. Patience is supernatural. Patience is the will and the willingness to wait for the appropriate time and to not take upon oneself rights and privileges that do not belong to you. And the pre- preeminent example of patience, as it always is, is Jesus. Our Lord, sa- our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who refused to call upon legions of angels to rescue him from the cross because he was patient because he knew what time it was and he knew knew what time it wasn't he knew that in the future there would be a time in which he himself would return with those very legions of angels to defeat God's enemies to bring victory and salvation to his people to vindicate his good and righteous name and he resolved to patiently wait for it Because he trusted in the plan and purposes of the Heavenly Father. And in the meantime, what did Jesus do while he waited? He died. Jesus died not in a passive resignation to the injustices of the Jewish and Roman authorities, but the Bible is very clear. Nobody took Jesus' life away from him. Jesus gave his life. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He gave it involuntarily in order that we might be saved from our sins, become sons and daughters of the true and living God. You see, we are God's children by virtue of Jesus' patience. And it's the same patience that James is calling us to. The early church father Cyprian, he wrote one of these uh, treatises on patience. And I really can't help but to think that Cyprian had been reading and reflecting on the letter of James as he was writing. He says this about patience. This is Cyprian, 4th century AD. Patience will temper anger. Patience will bridle the tongue Patience will govern the mind and guard peace. It will extinguish the fire of dissension. It will restrain the power of the wealthy. It will teach us to pardon our offenders quickly and to ask pardon of others. Essentially, Cyprian is saying all the things that James has commanded us to do in these past six weeks, the works that are the outward expression of the inward disposition of our hearts, Cyprian says patience will get you there. That if you are patient, all those things will be true of you. He continues, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. And that church, I think, could be the tagline of the entire book of James, what God is calling us to. We do not speak great things, but we live them. May this be said of each of us as well as our church for the glory of God and the good of his people. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Father God, If we're going to confess one thing this morning, it is likely this. We're not patient people. And in fact, we find it very difficult to be patient. Not only because we live in an impatient world. Of course, we can blame the many distractions around us. The pace of modern life. The busyness of our schedules. And all those things are true. But ultimately, we know the reason we are not patient It's because of a lack of faith. A lack of trust. A desire to take matters into our own hands. To be the lords and ladies of our own lives. So Father God, we confess our sin of impatience to you. And we thank you for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you for the gifts of the church. Your Holy Spirit that dwells among us. And the freedom that we have in light of the gospel to confess our sins to you and to one another. May you make us more patient people. But as we talked about this morning, not a passive patience, but a patience like a farmer, a patience who works hard, who's so in tune with your plan and your purposes, that as we look forward and await your perfect justice, that we can work hard even now to share your truth and your love with others. We thank you so much for Jesus, who's not only the example of perfect patience, but the one whose patience led to our salvation. May we look to him as our one and only hope in life and salvation now and forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.